Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In the winter 2019 issue of Connecticut Explored, museum curator Dave Corrigan tackles the obsolescence of everyday objects, like typewriters that were replaced almost overnight by personal computers. With the advent of digital recording, CDs, and streaming music services, no industry has experienced more rapid change in the last 20 years than the music industry. But as historians, we know that some people value doing things in the traditional way. In today's episode, assistant publisher Mary Donahue and podcast engineer Patrick O'Sullivan visit Connecticut's legendary dirt floor recording and production studios to talk to musician and dirt floor producer Eric Lichter. Connecticut Public Radio's John Dankowski calls dirt floor the music sanctuary of Connecticut. Hear more about how Lichter uses old-fashioned hands-on musical instruments and recording methods to produce some of Connecticut's most popular new musicians. This is Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored. Today, I'm joined by Eric Michael Lichter of Dirt Floor Recording and Production. I'm also joined by Pat O'Sullivan, our podcast engineer. Pat is usually behind the scenes, but this episode is all about his passion, music and recording. Welcome, welcome to Dirt Floor. It's great to have you. That was the longest gravel driveway I've ever driven up in Connecticut. But once I'm here, I see this beautiful cabin that looks like it's in the middle of a forest. Tell me a little bit about your studio. Well, uh, several years ago, I lucked out and found this wonderful log cabin and it was just my house it just existed as my home um raising my daughter who was about six or six or seven when we when we moved in i had the studio in another location and i was really into living as peaceful and simple a life as possible as i could you know leave a very small footprint the house sat empty for many years the family who lived in the house actually lived farther up the hill in a big, beautiful, newer version of this house. And the house has an incredible energy in it. So it made sense that when I made the decision to move the studio here, you know, that energy just, it permeates everything. Everybody who comes here just feels good about being here. It's a beautiful location. Our winter issue, we covered a lot of different things that were produced in Connecticut that now are obsolete. They used either an obsolete technology or a building material. And it made me think about the fact that you use more traditional recording methods. Could you tell us a little bit about your studio and describe it for the listeners? Absolutely. I would have to go back to the beginning of the story, of the dirt floor story, of my story as a musician and a producer. Um, I started using analog reel-to-reel tape machines. And the tape recorder was a big part of my backstory and even my story now. Um, it got me some good notoriety. It, it, I got some skin in the game, so to speak. You know, it was because I was the guy that was using analog tape. And, and when was that? What year? That started in 2006. Was analog, was that kind of tape already obsolete by then or, or not as used it by then? It was, you know, obsolete is a word, you know, 
or in transition maybe? People started to favor uh, cheaper methods of recording, you know, and utilizing digital uh, recording methods because it really, there was no tape. You could uh, record for hours and hours and hours and hours and not have to incur tape costs. Tape was expensive even when I started. It was at least a couple hundred dollars a reel and you would get 15 minutes of time on each reel. And this isn't the 70s where everybody had these exorbitant um, budgets to spend. You know, it wasn't Fleetwood Mac making rumors and spending millions of dollars. You know, we're not dealing in 1970s record company money. So I switched over just uh, about three or four years ago from using the tape machine to using Pro Tools. But the heart and soul of what I do still remains. And those old obsolete, quote unquote, obsolete yeah. things are still the main part of what I do. Um, using a big mixing console, old preamps and compressors and microphones and instruments and, and that kind of stuff. And so this is something that interests me is audio gear. So just for a layman's term, what was the, the overall arc of the, the change of the technology? I think the change in the technology was, uh, there are a few things, and I'm going to miss something. I'm sure someone's going to hear this and say, well, he didn't touch upon this. But what happened was they weren't really making tape machines anymore. They, start, they started to make digital audio tapes, you know, DAT recorders, ADAT recorders, and those things, which were at 16-bit, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is a resolution and audio quality size. So you had 16-bit, then you got 24-bit. But for the regular music fan, you won't notice that kind of thing. And for me, you know, knowing what I know, it doesn't affect my ability to listen to a Bing Crosby record. You know, I can enjoy a Frank Sinatra record as much as I can anything that's new and highly polished. I don't hear that, like I'm hearing the performance and, you know, you can't beat Frank Sinatra. It's a lot about the performance mm -hmm. and the musicianship and everything. So very little of it for me has to do with like the technological aspect of it. But I knew that the clients weren't really going to be able to continue to afford the rising cost of tape because mm. fewer companies were manufacturing it. And then it became a boutique thing. So when something becomes boutique, you know, it happens. That <laughs> price goes up. And I had gone through a number of uh, tape machines uh, over the years, and I sold the last one just a few years ago, and now I'm working solely th with Pro Tools. And what it's allowed me to do is work with artists all over the world and create albums with them. You know, I'm working with somebody in Denmark, and we're able to send stuff back and forth. But at the front of that is, you know, a large format vintage Neve mixing console. Again, all this analog and vintage instrumentation. And what are some of your favorite? You have a Neve console. That's a very, if you're in the audio world, this is like a very well-known, this is like a yeah. Rolls-Royce. And it's, it a, is, it's an yeah. antique one. It's yeah, vintage. it is, yeah. It's funny, Rolls-Royce, I've been saying that lately, but I've been, <laughs> instead of Rolls-Royce, I've been saying it's the Tesla or whatever the thing is now. I don't know what the thing is. And but. so explain a console, maybe visually what that looks like. People might have seen it on TV, what a big console it's is. It's the thing that looks like, you know, when you're in the Millennium Falcon, you know, and you're Han Solo yeah. and you're flying that thing. That's what it looks like. You know, I have, I have a young daughter, so I try, I sometimes see things through her eyes and sometimes she'll come in and just sit in front of that console and pretend that she's, you know, in this great movie because it's got the buttons and the lights yeah. on it, but it has a purpose. 
And so as opposed to a computer where you hit all the buttons in the computer, this has levels and knobs. And of its own, physically. faders and equalization and the ability to add, you know, uh, reverbs and, and other things. Um, and you're doing that in a like a desk-shaped machine. At a desk, a mixing right. desk, yeah. And all the great albums throughout history were done that way. And for me, it keeps that tactile connection. Whereas now you can you can record on a laptop, which is all great. Many great records are made that way, and you can do all of it there. But I prefer to play the mixing console as if it were an instrument itself, in the classic way of doing it. It's the only way I know how to do it. I'm going to go back a little bit. When I got into this in the first place, I didn't go to school for it. I don't really technically know what I'm doing, which is part of why it's working. So when I talk to people, and especially young kids, I'll, I'll meet with teenagers, you know, or college kids that, you know, want to do this. And I tell them, you know, you got to throw the rule book away. You can't listen to people who tell you, like, this, is, this plus this is going to equal this, because that's not how life really works. You have to not be afraid to say, you know what, this is how I'm going to do it. And if you want to do what I'm doing, I'm going to be over here doing it. So that's what I did. It was just a series of like, of me drawing a line in the sand and saying, like, this is how I'm going to do it. And I can play these instruments and, and I can put a song together. And so, Eric, like, how many instruments do you play? And are those recorded individually and then combined? I'm, I'm yeah, I mean, uh, for what I do as a producer and a multi-instrumentalist, if I'm working with a solo artist, they'll come in with a, with their song, you know, if they're playing it on a guitar, or if they're on the, playing a piano, or if they don't play anything. I try to find the arrangement and build the chord progression and build the dynamics, and then we'll start, yeah, and we'll start to layer it. We're building essentially like a sculpture. And a lot of the music that you've listened to and enjoyed over the years, minus, you know, if it's a band like Fleetwood Mac or something where you have a whole band playing, um, is a layering one piece over another piece over another piece and building a sonic sculpture. And so I, I play guitar. Guitar is my first instrument. And then I took up, you know, keys and drums and, you know, and I'm a singer. So I do all of these things and just accidentally sort of stumbled into this thing in my 30s. And one of the things that sticks out to me about the studio is nowadays a lot of people have their guitars or their drums or their bass through a synthesized one, through a computer right, right, programming, right. through MIDI, which is musical information in the computer, but not at Dirt Floor. No. You're playing no. everything. You have a million keyboards yeah. and things like that here, drum sets. Yeah. So talk about the difference with you like playing all this. Yeah, and this is where I think obsolete comes back around. I really prefer, you know, if we're looking or talking about something like a Fender Rhodes electric piano, which is this incredible vintage electric piano, Stevie Wonder, You Are the Sunshine of My Life. Mm. You know, uh, that's one of the greatest songs, you know, with that very identifiable sound used on millions of incredible recordings. Nowadays, you have a thing, uh, you have sampling keyboards that will perfectly sample those, what they call uh, legacy instruments, perfectly. So you have the Nord, mm -hmm. which is this new keyboard, and it samples that instrument at its absolute perfect moment. And the truth about those vintage instruments, like a Fender Rhodes piano, which I've got, is they were never perfect then. So when you listen to Stevie Wonder, mm playing his piano or singing, it wasn't perfect. It was a little flat here. It was a little sharp there. So because we're so, we have this incredible desire and quest for perfection, 
nowadays that uh, everybody wants to capture everything at its most perfect and that loses something you know you listen to frank sinatra saying he there are flat notes in there that doesn't matter it's that's not the point so that's why i really prefer using those things is they really capture the honest character you know those when they made those instruments they wow. wanted them to be perfect they didn't design them to just they weren't like that's just good enough <laughs> But they just weren't ever perfect. And now that that instrument's 45 years old, it's less perfect than it was, you know what I mean? As we all are when we age, right. you know, we become perfect in other ways, you know? And then you start to go back and start to love those things for what they were, because everything's just so out of control now. What know, are some other instruments or recording things that have now sort of been mimicked digitally that you do old school here or you do physically at um, Lots of synthesizers, any kind of keyboard instrument, you know, they've got, you know, you can buy one box that, you know, mimics all of those things. And I have the physical, actual dusty old thing. And they do a good job. Um, what are some of these things built? Some of the instruments, that, like what are some of the oldest pieces that you have here? Oh boy, well, I have, I have something out there which would be wonderful to talk about. I have a thing called a marxophone. It was made wow. in 1910 by this guy. Uh, I believe his last name was actually Marx, and he lived in Hoboken, not in Connecticut, but <laughs> close. Um, but he went door to door with this thing and oh sold it door to door. <laughs> and the thing was, it was this cool thing. It's like a zither and a harp and an auto harp, but it, instead of it, instead of strumming it, it has hammers that hit. And I'll show it to you. I'll, I'll, we and can so actually, this was like an invention then. This was an invention <laughs> and to look at. And I have one. I bought one that was oh like, and I use it on all kinds of albums. And it's a wonderful thing. And it was used, the Doors used it in the 60s. Like there are a couple of albums that utilized it, but it's not something you hear about very often. And it's my one of my favorite things. You look at it, it just looks like it's going to just go, but it doesn't. And then I have a vibraphone out there that's from the mid 40s. Um, and what's a vibraphone? A vibraphone has uh, mallets and um, these tines, these big, you know, it's kind of, it looks like a marimba or a large glockenspiel and you use wow. mallets to hit it. Wow. And it has a little motor that spins with a Doppler, like a butterfly <laughs> valve. It's the SpongeBob instrument. When you hear Sponge Under the Sea, it's that wow. sound. That's the sound and it's in the kitchen and these where are I keep real, everything. you know, no digital interfaces on these. The these real are just thing. machines. Yeah, and they're imperfect and wow. that's what's so great about them. And you have to like you have to sometimes you you know, it's a hard sell for an artist because some of them or a lot of them are sort of trained to think that it, you know, things need to be perfect. Perfection. It needs to be it can't be flat or sharp. I always have to challenge them. In fact, I had somebody here last uh, a couple of weeks ago and I wanted to build up a song. And it re was reminiscent to me of the kinks, like early kinks or um, even early Led Zeppelin. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my guitar and I'm going to knock it out of tune. Now, normally you want that. You People are, it's got to be in tune. Everything right. has to be in tune. I knocked my guitar a little bit out of tune. The piano, the grand piano in the kitchen was already a little bit out of tune, a little wobbly. I knocked a bunch of instruments totally out. And he was like, are you crazy? I'm paying you for that. And I was like, trust, trust, <laughs> trust me. So I laid it all down and then we played it back and it was like, 
it sounded like the Kinks, you know. And that's sort of what keeps stuff from being elevator music, right? I mean, if everything's perfect, it's sort of It flat. keeps it interesting. Yeah. You know, uh, you know that song or, or any Rod Stewart song from the early 70s, <laughs> you know, like Maggie, Maggie May, or any of those things, or, you know, that with the mandolin? Mm. That thing's majorly out of tune. Like, you listen to that stuff and it's... And even people like Tom Morello nowadays who literally just kind of makes noises with the guitar. Yeah. They find ways to just make a, have it emit some kind of technical sound. And yeah, and he's, a, a, he's a wizard at what he does, you know? Right. It's finding what you do and doing it the best. So for me, it's like trying to challenge people's, you know, get them out of their safety zone and kind of bring them back to what matters, which is the organic and old. Not old, because it doesn't have to be old, but trying to get them to understand what music is truly all about. Mm -hmm. And it's a way to convey the message and it's not always about everything being super clean. Sometimes, it, or a lot of times, it isn't. What do you think about auto-tune, then? I am, I have a, when it's used as an effect, I think it's great. I remember hearing auto-tune for the first time. It was 1999. I think Cher had that song. Yeah. I think it was Believe. And I thought it was, a, wow, that's a cool effect. Because we know Cher knows how to sing. But that was a cool effect. And even T-Pain, when he like really kind of brought it to the prominence, mm -hmm. like I know T, I know he can sing. He, he sings great. He used it as a cool effect. What happened was people started to use it to become something that they aren't because it will, you can manipulate it to make it sound like you can sing. But it's easy to detect. And so this is a very extreme form of what's called pitch correction, right? Right, exactly. It's a pitch correction. Mm -hmm. And you can hear it, you know, but when it's used as an artistic thing, it's a really great thing. But when it's used to cheat, that's when I don't really like it, but it's been... And so in the, in the old days, they wouldn't have had that, or the old days, what we think of, of classic American albums and stuff. This wasn't something that existed. You would just get someone else to sing it and put your face <laughs> on the cover. That's how they did it, Millie Vanilli. You know what I mean? They were like, we'll just, let's just get someone who can sing. Wow. But you still had to be able to sing. So you could not really fake the funk as much. You couldn't computers. fake the funk at all. <laughs> like someone had to really do the, do the work. But, but auto-tune really is a cool thing. And, and I, have, I have a thing that I do use occasionally called Melodyne, which is really nice because occasionally, if 99% of this thing is great, and again, I'm not, we're not on a quest for perfection, so I will be very choosy on what I use it on. I'll hear a bad note, but that bad note's a good note. Mm -hmm. But I'll hear a bad note that's just a bad note. So I don't want to, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So I think this obviously is going to appeal to artists that want that immediacy of real music and real instruments and a producer that's very involved with creating the sound. Who are some of the artists that you've recorded here, and why would they choose to come to your studio? Oh boy. Well, we've got one here now, Angela, Angela Luna. I'm here with the recording artist, Angela Luna, who's here at the studio working. Angela, you've recorded from here to California. What makes you choose a studio like Dirt Floor? Dirt Floor Studios is so special because it's wood. It's all around you and instruments are made of wood. And if we have this understanding, I think most of us understand that water contains memory. Musicians understand wood holds memory too. That's why certain musicians would run in a burning building for their guitar. It's irreplaceable. And you just can't do that with electronics. You just can't recreate that the beautiful sensation of natural elements in music. 
it's the relationship. It's you know like what we're do what I'm doing with Angela right now. It's it doesn't matter how it gets done. It's the the relationship between two people. It's the collaboration, or myself with a whole band. Oh, you know, Pat and I were talking about the fact that vinyl has made a comeback. The, it's on track to surpass CD sales for the first time in many years. I think it may have um, already. Yeah, 2019-20, yeah. it, was, it was on, the numbers were there for that. And so vinyl is not the cleanest or easiest way to listen to music, but there's something that draws people to buying it on vinyl. And so yeah. that sort of reminds me of what we're talking about with analog. So how does that all connect? Do you see like a correlation between that or nostalgia in general? I've got some some opinions on that for sure. Uh, a lot of the records that I make here actually turn into records. So once yeah. the uh, the artist is done, you know, there it'll either be them or their label or whoever you know whoever is going to be funding that that mm -hmm. next thing. And uh, vinyl, I always tell at this point, I'm just telling people don't bother with CDs. But it's really the majority of the people just aren't buying them. You know, my wife hasn't purchased a CD in like 10 years. Right. You know, that's another interesting example of something that used to be the most common way to get music that's pretty much been surpassed by streaming That's now. exactly what we're Well, it crazy. really is. Streaming is a really, it's a great way of doing things, but... And I've said this, I always I get on my little uh, soapbox, uh, you know, every so often because I, I'm an artist and I support artists. So I always post, you know, when a band, when anybody I've worked with has an album that's out and they're like, go get it now on Spotify. I'm like, hold up, sample it on Spotify. And if you like it, go and buy it. Because truly, honestly, nothing sounds as good as music that you've invested in. Nothing sounds as good when you put that title on. You feel like you own it, like you have a piece, uh, you know. And so I was having a conversation with somebody about, uh, I think it was Hotel California of all things, and they were like, well, I don't need to buy it again. I mean, like Henley has, you know, he's got enough money. And I was like, well, that's not the point. Like he made that, mm -hmm. like that's not for you to say. The thing about vinyl is that people will spend 20 to 25 bucks a piece on a vinyl record, even if they don't have a turntable. And it's like this, again, this uh, tactile, it's, like physical. it's yeah. you. And my daughter, who again, she she's somebody I, I, I kind of look at, and and she I, I can remember her laying on the floor on her on her stomach, you know, with a like looking at a Kiss record, Kiss Alive or something. It was one of the old Kiss, just listening to it, like reading, and there's a a, a physical connection, and mm -hmm. also you have to flip, you have to commit, you got to flip it when it's side one is over. So it's not that it sounds better necessarily. I think that it's, it's a little bit of all of those things. It's the, the tactile connection, the physical ownership of the, of the record. And I th it makes sense that it's, it's making, it, and it has made a comeback. And a lot of what I do here is we ultimately will get, you know, the albums pressed on vinyl. And I get to see like my work like on this incredible vinyl record, which is a real nice thing. Now, is there a place in Connecticut or the United States that presses vinyl? There are many. There are many. There are a okay. lot. Yeah, down south in New York, and they couldn't have imagined. They must have been like, "Man, we threw all that stuff out, and now it's back again." But you know what? Uh, it's like I'm a person that I trust old things. I drive an old car. I have a truck that's going to be 40 years old. It's a Toyota Land Cruiser, okay? And it's, uh, I get teased all the time. It's, it's a nasty looking thing. But I get in it, poof, 
it starts right up. Never lets me down. And uh, they used to make things to last. There was a yeah. time when they made things you could like drop off the top of a building and it would you could just pick it up and use it. And it's not like that now. Things are not made with the same quality that they were made with back then. Thanks for listening. We wish to thank our guests, Eric Michael Lichter and musician Angela Luna. To learn more about Dirt Floor Recording and Production Studios, go to dirtfloorrecordingstudio.com. And for more about Angela Luna, go to her Facebook page at Luna and the Lost Souls. Our thanks to Miss Luna for the music in the episode. This episode was produced by Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. I'm Walt Woodward, hoping you'll join us next time on Grading the Nutmeg.